Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by Chris Dubois to talk about supply chain and inflation in today's market. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Matthew. It's great being here. I'm excited to talk about this topic with you as it's kind of affected all of us. Uh, we're trying to do installs, and I got some people that are waiting a year for certain parts for certain things. And so supply chain has been a disruptor in our market. It's also kind of helped hold things at bay in regards to supply because people aren't building barns. And as the the world rebounds from covid Everything's changing. So I'm excited to have you update us on where things are and where things might be going. If, if we could start off just by you giving a little bit of a background on yourself and maybe your involvement in agriculture, that'd be great. Oh, sure. Happy to. And just for people in the audience, I lead IRI's um, protein practice. So IRI is a very distinct firm that works with a lot of retailers and a lot of a lot of processors, packers, and manufacturers in the in the consumer product space. So every every day we see every item sold in every store, supermarket in America. So that includes all the pork shops, tenderloins, but all the Tide, all the cleaning supplies, anything else you might see in Walmarts, Targets, supermarkets, drugstores, dollar stores, et cetera. In addition to that, we've got you know uh, 500 million different frequent shopper cards that we kind of pull together and while we never look at private information like names and addresses, we know an awful lot about purchase patterns inside the U.S. So our clients use a combination of our sales data and all of our analytics to, to see what's going on in the marketplace. And that includes looking at out of stocks and supply chain conditions through a lot of the software um, that we use with our retail partners and manufacturer partners. With today's supply chain, I guess before we get into today's supply chain, where have we been? Do you have any good good updates on what we went through over the last year, year and a half? Some things that might interest or surprise people? Uh, it's been just probably the most incredible journey. If I think about, you know, starting at COVID and what where we thought things were going, you know, I, I look at almost all the forecasts back and it's probably some of the most humbling times, you know, that I think anybody who, who gives forecasts for a living, and I or I typically won't. Um, but, you know, just seeing what's going on inside the marketplace, it's changed much more than I think any one of us ever could. So if I and I and I, I say that simply just because the changes, um, I think, rocked everything about that manufacturers and retailers had assumed up until the present. So the whole idea of how much safety stock is is held up in the supply chains, all about you know, the whole idea of how staffing is done inside the plants, the, the major focus on food safety um, that have been put, put upon in the industry 
all those kind of things of how you run a, uh, a meat plant, how you run a supply chain, everything changed from 2020. And I think we all lived through that. You know, we saw stores where inventories were challenged. We saw plants shut down for a great period of time. So, and realistically, you know, the impact on the consumer was is huge. It's one thing to be out of, you know, uh, call it a, some hardware at Home Depot or lumber might be a little light. Yeah, all that, all the supply chain issues that everybody felt across different categories was real. But when you touch food, that's a big deal for people because they're in the stores more than once a week, typically shopping. And everybody has their favorites. So when, when the favorites aren't there and, you know, when some of that food security rattles, it's, it's probably one of the most, uh, most important and emotional things you'll see from shoppers. Um, but I'm just struck by the stories, you know, that I hear from, from retailers in terms of the hours on the floor, you know, and the dedication towards getting products um, all set up. I think of, you know, the stories and just even from some of the store managers about, you know, people working all the extra hours and all the extra time and working not only just in the department they were in, but in across departments, um, there are so many powerful stories coming out of the retail side that um, it, it's really humbling because I, ta- I I work in the food industry and I've been proud to be part of the agriculture industry for 30 years. But, you know, the contact points that that everybody touches are exactly that point in, of the store, the store employee and the products all right there, regardless of whether you bought it, bought a product in e-commerce and went to pick it up at the store, or you walk through a store and put it Art. Um, that personal connection just doesn't go away. And even some of the stories that, you know, a lot of, most of my clients are, are major meat processors and just the stories of heroism all the way through the plants and um, of what it took to keep those plants moving or to restart them back, or in many cases, reconfigure entire plants. So like one major meat processor had just turned over three major Plants towards export and had to reconfigure everything within a few oh. to make it um, to, to serve internal demand. Like in other words, all the U.S. demand when things pop up. I think across the whole CPG industry, which includes me, you know, we're up fourteen percent in twenty one. I mean, just to say we increased food sales, you know, over a hundred billion dollars, you know, incrementally in a year. That's a lot. I mean, that's not just, wow, we had a nice increase of three or four percent. You know, that rocks an entire economy with that kind of volume. But, um, but I, there's probably nothing you could be more proud of just than what we've gone through. So while it's been hard, I think a lot of people just tend to overlook what, what a huge accomplishment it is to be able you, to make this much product through. You had talked about all of the data that you have on, like, buying patterns. Is there any particular buying pattern that you're seeing today or recently that's just shocking? Any, any weird trends? So there are some really big trends and I'd say this one sort of shocked me a little bit. So we did um, some analysis a little bit while, a while back trying to figure out what what was causing this persistent um, increase in what I would call peripheral proteins, you know, all the way through. And also just what was driving the big increase in meat. And what we saw were just some very fundamental changes in how people cook. I mean, so you and 
if, if you and I are speaking here, you and I can both say, yep, we cook more. But on average, when you look across the U.S. population, most households will buy 10 different cuts of meat on average. There's different flavors. It might be bone-in versus boneless. And those are, those are what I would call details. We track them all in our data set, but it's, it's not, those aren't really different things. If I have um, pork tenderloin, but I have two different flavors. So most, most households over time will buy about 10, but what we saw was about 30% of U.S. households in particular greatly expanded um, the numbers, the number of cuts they bought. So on average, 30, 30%, about 18 different cuts. They went from 10 to 18. And it's not only that they bought it once, it's that they rebought it you know, huh. all times in some cases. So it wasn't accidental, like, oh, hey, I'll just toss this ribs in here, these ribs in here and see what happens. Um, yeah, this is people expanding their repertoire. So what we found in the, in the pandemic was there is a very solid set of people that not only learned how to cook, but they learned how to cook different things. And they, they expanded their portfolio of what I would call, um, yeah, the cuts that they'll purchase regularly. So now what we have is a group that I call confident folks. These, this is a group that's now confident in the kitchen. They're They've tested recipes. They found the recipes they like. But that fundamental change in cooking behavior is something that's going to drive a long-term demand um, in the U.S. grocery market. And you can see it every day um, in terms of the, the change in, in buying behavior, that the willingness to try new things and that breadth of assortment. It's some of the reasons you see you know, softness in chicken breast or softness in ground beef, you know, all the go-to staples. And why? Some of it is a little bit of price, but some of it is the fact that people are cooking more. They're much more comfortable cooking. And, and that whole idea of trying to bring a restaurant experience home is something that, that has fundamentally changed inside the, uh, inside the American population. Yeah, that's, that's really neat, too, because, I don't know, on my end, I just got sick of cooking the same thing that I normally would do if I wasn't traveling and say, okay, I'll cook this because I like it and I'm home now. I can finally eat it. And then it's like, okay, I had this like 12 times. It's like a hyper fixation meal. Let's go out there and find some new stuff. And then it just became a fun hobby to start cooking. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, found that it became like a social, a social thing. Yeah. As, as um, I, I would just call it using new platforms to try it. So TikTok, and other social media became a, a much bigger source for new recipes and recipe inspiration than just three years ago. So that's, if you're a marketer, that becomes a major platform to go, to go engage um, consumers on. And that's a big source of where people get it. If you ask people five years ago where they got a lot of the recipes, they would come back and say, well, my family had it, or I grabbed something out of the newspaper uh, five years ago, I'd be like, 10 years ago, but you know, I pulled up something offline or, or whatever else. So I'll pull up something in my iPad. Now it's social media, you know, whether it's a Facebook feed or um, TikTok or something else, it varies a little bit by generation, but social media is that ability to drive it um, really changes it. So, so where, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Where are we today with supply chain? Is it like, how much closer are we to being where we want to be? It varies a little bit by protein. So I'd say from a pork side, a lot of it's getting better. So if I, if I go back you know, to some of the big processors, a lot of them are used to kind of numbers of 
hey, we are 98% fill rates, 99% fill rates, and they felt pretty good about line of sight to where they were getting product. It doesn't mean that everything was perfect all the time or whatever else, but they, you know, we went from to a pretty stable set of, of plants and product flows. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we saw fill rates coming down to like into the low 70s in a lot of cases, and we would see in-stock rates inside the stores, um, it, usually in the 70s, you know, even low 60s at times at the worst part of it, and that's a big deal. So it wasn't that there was no meat on the shelves. It usually just meant there may not be that, you know, there may not be enough selection of a certain cut that people wanted, but there would be other stuff to go to. Um, what we're seeing now is that that those fill rates and some of the costs and everything else are coming back, back into the high 80s and even low 90s in some cases. And the pork industry in particular, the chicken and turkey, there still is a lot of challenge with, HPAI and um, some of the you know, avian influence is still out there. I, I'm not a, I'm not going to give you the pandemic view of is it getting better, but everything, everything kind of says it's leaning to getting better as you see more and more barns opening up, more states opening up. But um, yeah, the the trend is the trend is things are getting better, but especially in the pork side. How is inflation? impacting things now on the protein side and is inflation in some ways an opportunity to help a lower price protein become more competitively priced uh, is there opportunity in inflation and, and i guess where are we with it today yeah, inflation's probably been the biggest story and i think that caught a lot of companies somewhat prepared but many weren't really ready for where that jump was um you know, in many cases, I think we're seeing inflation running, you know, anywhere between 10 and 20%, depending on the cuts that you're looking at, proteins. You know, and it's not just meat. I mean, seafood was up almost 20%, you know, on that side. So that took oh, wow. eggs out of, um, you know, a lot of the big growth over the last year. And it, it's it's every category. So, you know, if you talk to people in the, in the pork industry or the meat industry, everybody's just a little embarrassed sometimes. Well, okay, the price is, you know, cost went way up. So we had to take a little bit of price. And there's always that hesitation to go out and grab that extra dollar. So it's not like people are gouging. It's, you know, it's it's almost done as a last resort in a lot of cases. Um, but on the other side, you know, what we're seeing is that strong demand at retail. Um, while volumes are off, I mean, people are still spending the dollars, you know, on that side. So dollars are growing part of that price increases that have happened. And while the volumes are weaker, like you'd expect, you know, it's, you're still seeing good support stores. Um, What's what's fascinating is there is a trend that started with COVID. I've used the word premiumization. So it's not that rich people are buying more products because that's not an insight um, in the case. But what we found was people across all income classes were buying what we call higher tiered products in, in across multiple categories. In other words, products that, you know, went above the average cost in that category or, or what you call premium products that drive towards premiumization was a direct result of people being at home a lot more wanting to cook more and even, um, you know, to some degree making their lives better. You know, it's as simple as that. It may be more convenient. It may be having a nicer meal or a, nicer side dish, but that willingness to spend a little bit more um, is there. So that's why 
like when you look across the board, there is a trade down cycle that's gone on. That's, that's not a surprise given the huge increase in price. It's absolutely happened. But what's amazing is you will see things like beef short ribs still holding in. You'll see tenderloin still holding in in some cases. Um, so people will pay for the premium products. And so it's not just all the high price products are dropping and all the low price products are increasing. It's very selective all the way through it. And to me, that, that just says trends like premiumization, while they were going up really fast early on COVID and even into the start of this year, they've moderated somewhat, but they haven't rolled back. And that's a, that'll be a big thing when we, uh, when we see some of the inflation numbers abate a little bit more in the back half of the year and probably into early 23. Um, you know, when that starts happening, you'll, you'll continue to see strength, I think all the way through the meat case. And it's, it's, so it's not just i I'm going to trade down from steak to hot dogs. If you will. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it's probably unexpected that through COVID and, through all of the alternative proteins that really boomed in 2019, that within a year, we didn't actually see a decrease in consumed protein. We actually saw a a pretty substantial increase. And so I think it really speaks to the fact that with alternative proteins, with changing diets, with increasing population, there's, there's a big enough pie that these alternative solutions aren't really eating away from the demand. They're, They're just adding another, segment to that market it sounds like yeah oh that to me that's absolutely the right takeaway is you know you you can look at meat substitutes or alternative proteins and say honestly well gee that is a big category on its own it's about 1.4 billion on a on a yearly basis Mm -hmm. but it's been declining which is a surprise and it's certainly flattened off of what i would call a very fast pace of increase around 2018, 19. So they had a, there's an interesting, uh, there's a podcast called Business Wars. It's pretty neat. They had one that was uh, Ben and Jerry's versus Haagen-Dazs. And they actually said, I think it was like 2018 or so, 2017, 2018, uh, Halo ice cream, which is about 330 calories versus like the 1100 calorie ice cream on the other two. It surpassed them both. It was the first time in like 25, 30 years that both of them fell behind a competitor in the premium ice cream space. And the next year, it dropped way down. And so it feels like this alternative protein is almost following the same thing where, you know, for a year or two there, we saw we saw a spike, but we haven't necessarily realized the the baseline of, of what is normal for that segment. Do you, do you, does that apply, do you think, to, to what we're seeing? Is Are we still trying to identify what is the baseline for alternative proteins? Did we see a spike? Uh, where do you think we are? I think we're I think we're at a pretty good plateau. So right now, I think we're seeing a it's about one and a half percent of the total meat case. If you look at total total meat sales, and that's you know all proteins and ground and random weight, fixed weight, frozen, all that kind of stuff. So in the meat case in general, just for the people who who aren't kind of focused on that, it's about eighty four billion here in the U.S. If you look at the supermarket, you know Walmart, Target, you know club dollar channels. So you, 84 billion is sort of a number you'd think about on that side. Do uh, you do much on the dairy side? We do. No, we track all that. It is it is bigger on the dairy side. So in plant-based milk and, and some of those other categories, it, it is a huge deal. 
you know, so for, for meat, it's about one and a half percent of the meat case. Do you think that the dairy industry segmentation is a, a, a forecast or a, um, a leading indicator of what's going to happen on the, uh, the meat side? Or do you think that's just its own unique situation? It's really its own unique situation. I, I think we're honestly at a pretty good plateau for where alternative proteins are going to be. It doesn't mean Beyond Meat or Impossible or some of these other providers can't find some more niches that grow. Right now, if we're at 1.5%, I think the, the real ceiling is max two, given, given the ingredients set and things um, of where we're at. I think there's, you know, you, you see almost as many people trying this product now as people who are leaving the product. And oh, okay who are what we call like you, people who use it and buy it at least occasionally on an ongoing basis, they're just buying less. So that's sort of what the headwinds are. You know, you still have people coming in through the funnel, you know, trying it, if you will. And then you have people are saying, no, that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted. <laughs> and those numbers are about equal. So the, the real headwinds are coming from the, the continued users. And that's sort of that you're seeing a little bit of lessening of enthusiasm. But you're also seeing a real sharpening of competition. Like, you know, we had a ton of companies bring these products out. And without trying to name names or, you know, make somebody feel bad or whatever, not all of them work. You know, so I, I kind of liken it to a community pool where there's really just a fixed capacity that's there. There's only so many swimmers that can be in the pool. Mm-hmm. And what, we're, what we're seeing now is too many people jumped in the pool, you know, a while back and now they're just being pulled out. That's, that's what retailers are doing. It's just pulling some of these brands out and then moving some of the forms around. I think, you know, we've done some studies um, with some clients and, you know, alternative proteins really consumers expect to see it in the, the frozen side. They're less comfortable seeing it in the, on the, uh, the fresh meat case. So you're seeing retailers change some of that too, as they've, they have more experience, but I think, you know, the only big, there is, you know, I would say, never say never, but I would say the plant-based industry probably has to do two things to kind of get, if they're ever going to get beyond that 2%. And this is kind of what I'd say for the audience is if you see these things happen, then you know things are changing. One is you got to see the ingredient list cleaned up. Right now there's too many oils and other things in there that don't look like meat on that ingredient list. And yeah, the beyond beyond meat impossible and others totally get it. They understand it. You know, that's not news. But you're seeing real buyer pushback to that. So in the case of where it doesn't matter until it matters, what we're finding out is increasingly the younger generation say it matters and they're not buying it as much. Um, and that's that's kind of why you see the hesitation. I think the second big unlock, yeah, you know, beyond simplifying the ingredient list, um, is is having a real story around sustainability. And today, you know, those, the alternative meats have a halo of that, but they haven't proven it. And I think if they prove it, we can really make a huge story out of that. That would increase their ceiling beyond 2%. So those are the two, you know, what would have to change. You know, yeah. And I, I was, I was kind of thinking about this, like we're in kind of a sustainability, sustainability renaissance uh, as it is. And uh, as animal protein is pushed and driven to become more sustainable, sooner or later, poultry, swine, maybe fish, get to being carbon neutral or carbon negative. And if they actually achieve that, well, then they almost have a similar sustainability story as alternative proteins, which really takes one of their major marketing 
pillars away from them as an advantage. And I don't think that's going to bode well for that market. Yeah, I think that that's actually, you're right. If, if when meat producers come back around that, around to those kind of measures, there's, there's a couple companies now that have been very big in regenerative farming. I, mean, I give Applegate an awful lot of credit. They've gotten behind the regenerative story. And I think that's, you know, that will be a big part of, you know, how they talk about sustainability moving forward. And there's a company out of New Zealand that's brought new items into the marketplace where they can show net carbon zero for the, and they put it right up, you know, right on the package, big font, net carbon zero. And they do that because of how they focus on regenerative farm agriculture, how they manage, you know, plantings on the, on the grasslands and the ranches, but you know, for silver fern, you know, they're about a one and a half billion dollar company out of New Zealand um, with some exports to the U S but I think that to me is the future, you know, for the meat industry is, you know, getting beyond what I call random acts of citizenship, you know, which is what most sustainability is mm-hmm. doing good things to help the environment and doing or workers or, or whatever. And I'm not trying to minimize it. If you ask, you know, if you, if you hear about the sustainability programs from big processors, it, it's very powerful. There's a lot of good things being but it doesn't tie back to a meaningful consumer benefit that you can put on a label. When you put net carbon zero on a label, I think that that has the potential to change the game. And the same thing for regenerative farming. That is a positive theme, positive meaning it, it lifts everybody up to say, you know, we're doing something tangible and good. Um, going back to your dairy example, I think one of the reasons plant-based kind of kicked in big was, you know, that huge discussion around RBST. Some milk has RBST, some stuff doesn't. 99% of consumers had no idea what RBST was. And, you know, the moment you start making people doubt about what's in the milk, well, plant-based had a story. So the more I think meat processors sort of drive to what's the real consumer benefit they're getting up, you know, driving to and sustainability and building the models around that. The game starts changing, and I, that's where I kind of look to Silver Fern, Applegate, and some of these other processors, uh, you know, telling that story. And I, to me, that says ten years from now, I, I bet it look we're going to see a lot more of that going forward. So to wrap things up, there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask. And, and first off, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. This has been this has been really insightful and very interesting. I'd like you to answer a couple of questions. The first being, what is something unique about you that most people in agriculture might not know? Wow. Unique about me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it's very fair to say that I'm probably not the most famous Chris Dubois. There's a great Grammy award winning songwriter. So when, if you were broadcasting this out, you know, in country music and you think, wow, I got this guy, Chris Dubois on a podcast. <laughs> we're disappointed that it's not, you know, the guy who has like 12 different Grammy awards, but um, <laughs> just some guy from Wisconsin. <laughs> what, what is a golden nugget you can share with listeners? A bit of life wisdom. Life wisdom. Yeah, I guess you know, the hard part is I'm probably old enough to actually have an opinion on some of that too. I, mean, I don't view myself as being that old, but I am probably that old. Um, yeah. I'd say I'm, I am constantly amazed at how, how long relationships can last if you keep them up and, and also the importance of treating people well, you know, when you're there in the moment, 
Um, you know, if I think about relationships that have lasted over 30 years in business, you know, there's a lot of those and I'm grateful for them, but I also am very cognizant of, of how, how I treat people every day. And that's, I know that's sort of like a, Hey, that's not really news, but um, it's easy to be transactional in business. And it's actually very hard to keep good, solid relationships built on trust, built on your word, built on great, yeah, best efforts. Um, but if you treat it as something beyond a transaction, that's something that says, hey, this is part of a long journey. Um, yeah, there's so much reward down the path. That's, I wish I could have done more of that when I was younger. You know, there's relationships I wish I'd kept up. But um, the value of the value of the ones that have stayed and I've kept up with been just uh, it's been very powerful. So that whole idea of treating people well when when you're when you're with them and and consider it as part of a long journey versus transactions is a big deal in my mind. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining the Popular Pig Podcast. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Matthew. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.